Welcome to Voices of Australia, a podcast where we explore different perspectives on how to build a cohesive society. As recent data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics suggests, the spiritual landscape of our nation is undergoing a profound shift. With Christianity still the dominant face, a rising 38.9% of Australians now identify as non-religious, while other faiths, such as Hinduism and Islam, continue to grow. How does this reflect the evolving dynamics of Australia's social fabric? What does it mean for social cohesion, individual rights and community harmony in our culturally diverse society? To delve deeper into these compelling questions, we've invited two extraordinary guests to our conversation today. Andrew West is a distinguished journalist, broadcaster and presenter of the Religion and Ethics Report on Radio National. With experience as a senior reporter with ABC and as the author of two culturally significant books, Andrew brings a wealth of knowledge on Australian politics and culture to the table. His work featured in an array of international and national publication reflects his comprehensive understanding of our social, religious and political landscape. Rabbi Gabby Coltman serves at the Ark Centre, a Jewish community centre leading a vibrant synagogue Equipped with a Master of Social Work from Deakin University, Rabbi Gabby engages actively in various community roles, from an AFL multicultural ambassador and a Melbourne fight back against Parkinson's charity chairman to an advisor to the Scanlon Foundation Research Advisory Committee. With his experiences in spiritual health and chaplaincy work, Rabbi Gabby offers valuable insights into the interplay between faith, community and societal progress. Welcome, Gabby and Andrew. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're absolutely delighted to have you. And I thought we might just start out by talking about how you both uh, perceive the influence of religious beliefs on Australian society and its challenges today. Uh, quite a broad question, so take it in whichever direction you would like. So perhaps, Andrew, you might like to grapple with that one first. Uh, well, uh, thank you very much. Uh, I just also mention how valuable I find the work of the Scanlon Foundation. So I was very happy to uh, to take part in this um, uh, because, as I say, I find the work very valuable. I find it comprehensive uh, and it's a real window into Australia. So you guys will have as much knowledge about this as I do. Um, I, I think the most compelling statistics that we can speak about are those of the most recent census, which you cited. And that showed that uh, religious belief in Australia across all faiths is now down to about 53%. That isn't an entirely um, clear-cut picture because while about 38% of people profess to have no religion, what it means is that they have no uh, formal religious affiliation. It doesn't mean that they lack a hunger. It doesn't mean that they lack questions, a desire to, for uh, deeper spiritual engagement. It does mean, however, and these are questions that we'll talk about later, I'm sure, that for a whole lot of reasons, they don't want to be formally affiliated, particularly with a Christian church. So Christianity is down to 43%. It's still a plurality of uh, of Australian believers. Um, and then when we add in the uh, other Abrahamic faiths and also Islam and also Hinduism and Buddhism, Sikhism, we end up with a, a faith community of between 53 and 55%. So the landscape that we face is one in which there is a diminishing influence 
of formal religion. And you have to say a diminishing respect for the leadership of formal religious institutions, particularly major Christian institutions. But at the same time, at the grassroots, if you look at things like the enrolment in faith-based schools, which is always a telling factor, that has held up quite well. Mm-hmm. So it means that some people see some, quote, instrumental value in religion, even if they don't want to buy into all of its precepts and tenets. Rabbi, I suspect you've got a similar sort of um, approach, but certainly coming from the Jewish religion, you'd have experience around uh, religious schools, as well as that overarching concern about um, the number of people that are um, actually attending services. If the, the last census is sort of my guiding light. Um, it is a worrying trend and something that I'm grappling with as a community rabbi, someone that uh, heads a synagogue. Um, really, the beautiful thing about Judaism is that you don't need to be in an ashram or a synagogue or you know to connect with uh, you know the the God of Abraham. Um, so and during COVID and the like, we were I was you know screaming from the treetops to pray at home. God is there, especially during the high holidays and for life cycle events, we were doing, we were doing them out of people's houses and online. And now seeing and trying to get, uh, trying to get congregants back into the synagogue is indeed quite tough, but at the same time, their connection to the synagogue and to myself is still there. They might not be actively um, participating as much as I, the rabbi, would like, but they're definitely connected, um, whether it's a Jewish holiday or a life cycle event and so forth. And tell you the truth, a lot of my thought and efforts are going towards um, trying to make the place of worship, the synagogue, in my particular case, relevant to Gen Z and millennials, which are which are also finding different ways um, to connect outside of organised religious structures and so forth. Can I ask both of you whether or not there is an, uh, a generational divide in this? Are you finding that older individuals within the community are attending more or are they dropping off as well as younger people? Rabbi? Um, they participate and attend a lot more than younger generations and, for for example, millennials and, and Gen Z and Y, um, and they are the core constituents as of now. But ultimately, Judaism is a religion of education. We are, you know, we're called the people of the book, the Jewish people. So ultimately, we the emphasis is on the children, the next generation, and so many of our festivals are uh, not based on celebrating um, different things that happened within the context of the Bible or Jewish history. They're rather based around that, but at the same time, how are we passing down the baton and revolved around passing down the baton and making them relevant and teaching the next generation about their heritage, about their tradition and where what our identity is all about. Yeah. And that's going all the way back a millennia um, and yeah. also biblical times. So yes, would they, are they participating as much as I would like to see them? Or are the parents, and for, to use a nice Yiddish word, schlepping them to shul like they used to with <laughs> <laughs> previous generations and 
<laughs> no, they're not. And we're seeing this this great divide between sort of the grandparents and mm-hmm. the grandchildren, but the intermediary, their children are not coming as much as their grandparents and their great grandparents. And that's just the reality on the ground. And that's why um I'm there to sort of schlep people back into shore and make events <laughs> and get them, get those bums on the seats, which um, <laughs> having, having seen you in action, Gabby, I, <laughs> I can understand how you're going about doing that. Um, Andrew, what about you? What about the other religions? Certainly, uh, you know, uh, the uh, Catholic religions and others, are they yeah. seeing a similar generational divide? Absolutely. And in fact, I'm just looking now at the census data. And uh, for example, um, the the millennials had the highest proportion of people who identify with no religion, uh, 46.5% mm-hmm. compared with uh, 38% across the population generally. Um, uh, it was definitely people Gen X, which is my generation and older, who had a a, a bias in favour of, this is just, for example, Christianity, uh, were had a stronger identification with Christianity. I, I mention that because it's the dominant, the dominant faith. But yes, it's it's very much the case that um, Gen uh, that the millennials uh, have a have the highest proportion of people who identify as no religion, higher interestingly than Gen Z, which is the next group down, um, people under the age of twenty five. And this, I think, also reflects some other uh, research that's that's come out that says that Gen Z, so people on campuses now, are much more curious about religion while rejecting many of the formal affiliations, the structures, the formal authorities and hierarchies of religion. They're much more curious and open mm-hmm. to discussions about faith, including with mainstream and historic faiths. They're yeah. not... It is not true to say, I mean, Rabbi uh, Gabby, you know, uh, sitting here uh, as, as, uh, as our older brother, you know, in, in the, the, the great um, competi- competition or, or the great uh, makeup of faiths would know that it's not just um, a fascination with uh, sort of faith or, or, or spiritual groups or affiliations or trends that came out from the 60s onwards. They're still among Gen Z a fascination and openness um, to the ancient faiths. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it does come down to a personal connection. And this is very interesting because religions that have and denominations that have, uh, if you like, a very strong missional focus tend to survive better. So if you look, for example, at uh, Anglicanism um, in its more traditional forms, it is it is diminishing because it doesn't have what's considered to be a strong missional focus, i.e. people deliberately going out recruiting. Mm-hmm. Um, Rabbi Gabby will uh, will uh, correct me on this, but um, it is many of the uh, ultra-Orthodox communities that are actually growing quite well. I remember when I was at Columbia University um, in New York uh, in the mid uh, and late 1990s, every Friday... Uh, the Lubavitcher would be there outside the gates just before uh, Shabbos, uh, and they would be uh, inviting people 
um, to to to, uh, to Shabbos dinner, uh, to some observance. They even approached me at the at one point. I was said, "I'm very flattered that you asked, but <laughs> I'm not Jewish." Um, <laughs> but I but I commend but I commend your effort. But it's 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 religions and denominations that have a very strong missional focus that seem to be surviving and growing. Mm-hmm. Gabby, did you want you, to respond man. to that? Oh, I could tell you, Andrew, that the Lubavitchers, the Chabadniks that were outside the gates of your university, they are probably still there trying to get people <laughs> to come to their Friday night meals. And they're, they're booming. They're, yeah. you know, sort of outreach, which really they look at it as an inreach because this is their brethren. These are their brothers and sisters that might not be so in tune, they might be lacking a Shabbos meal, but they bring them in back into the fold. And it's not just as a, the mission like that, which is their that's their inspiration to go and bring people back into the fold in this that particular Hasidic set. But what I would say is that Judaism survived for so long and through all the trials and tribulations and expulsions and massacres and, you know, and, and the like, because there's that, in my opinion, that educational component of empowering the next generation. And yes, we might see a downward spiral of you know, coming to synagogue, but the synagogue will always be there as a meeting place and a place for Jewish life cycle events to be celebrated and the like, you know, a circumcision, a bar and bat mitzvah, weddings and 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 morning rituals and so forth. But what where it really happens is within the Jewish home and the Jewish educational institutes. Yeah. which is a huge, huge emphasis on regardless of how orthodox uh, you are or how observant you might have, you might be, mm-hmm. or your family. So I'll, I'll get, I'll come back to that. But um, Rabbi, just why I've got you, uh, you described your time in Israel as formative and magical. Um, I wondered if you could share more about how those experiences have influenced your approach to your religious duties here in Australia, and and how that keeps. What are the things that that were your experience there in Israel that you want others to experience as well? Uh, Israel. It was that the formative formative years in my life and being surrounded by um, Jewish people, kosher food, that sense of brotherhood, uh, sisterhood within the Jewish startup nation. It was just incredibly special because, as we say, uh, you know, we are mishpocha, we are family, the famous saying saying goes. And then I did a stint in the mystical city of Sfat, which is in the north of Israel, which was just in, incredible being there at a rabbinical uh, a school, followed by a year and a half of receiving my rabbinical ordination in Jerusalem and going down to the Western Wall, living in the rabbinical seminary that I was in, um, receiving my ordination, but really being immersed in not just Jewish theory, theology, and practice, which is what I sort of live with now, even as a rabbi and an Orthodox Jew. But when you have that day in, day out, and you're immersed in it, you're bathing in it, um, it's just incredibly spiritual, and it, it, it's lasted with me so much so So when I first got married almost a decade ago, I insisted that we, with my with my wife, that um, we, um, we go spend the first um, couple months of our marriage back again in Jerusalem, mm. which is is just another incredibly spiritual and lighting experience and so forth. And anyone listening out there, if you haven't 
been to the Holy Land, I, you must. It will give you a better and broader context of what's happening over there. But at the same time, regardless of which faith background you, you, you're from or you, um, you practice, there, there will be something there for you. Yeah, th- thank you, uh, because that that is a very, um, uh, I think that, that a lot of people seek that type of connection to something in their lives, uh, and that brings a, a wholeness to how you experience the world, certainly from a spiritual perspective, regardless of what religion you follow. Andrew, th- there, there is quite a bit of conversation right now about Israel in uh, from a political perspective. And you've spent quite a bit of time examining religion in public life. I wondered whether or not you see politics having any sort of an influence on people's approach to religion or how it might influence public opinion at the moment. And does that have an influence on how people might gravitate towards that more formal religious institutions? Yes, I do. And some of the most instructive um, data and experience actually comes out of the United States A lot is made, and it will probably have some relevance in Australia too, but a lot is made of the so-called evangelical right vote in the United States. What people, uh, I think, don't fully understand is that um, white evangelicalism, in inverted commas, because there's a a very large black evangelical community in the United States as well, it doesn't use the descriptor of evangelical, But if you just talk, for example, about the white evangelical vote, it's actually shrinking as a percentage of the American electorate. I think it's down to about 15 percent, which will surprise people who think that, you know, I heard one writer a few years ago say it was 70 (laughs) percent. I thought, you know, a quick Google search would have corrected that. But what is the but what is the reason for this? What is the reason for it diminishing as as a percentage of the of the population in the United States. It's not because people are rejecting its religious precepts, but what they have rejected over the past 20 to 30 years, most intently, although it's been happening for 50 years, is its involvement in everyday politics. People do not like the enmeshment of their faith and their politics. And that has been a big problem uh, for for um, uh, evangelicals in the United States. They they may be a mobilizing force, for example, within the Republican Party, but they're losing ground among Americans because they're too enmeshed in the United States, in, in U.S. politics. In Australia, I've noticed, especially after Scott Morrison became prime minister, there was a real reluctance, I have to say, of um, many uh, evangelical and uh, Pentecostal leaders to get involved in politics because they saw that, you know, it's just not the way uh, to grow and sustain a congregation. People shy away from religion when it's too associated with politics. Um, And you know, they they were very anxious, um, evangelical and Pentecostal leaders in this country, at least, you know, in my observation, they were very reluctant to be owned by one side of politics. And while it was great for them to have for Pentecostal Christians, which are a very fast growing group of Christians, especially among Mm non-Anglers, I mean, the great growth of Pentecostal Christianity in this country is um, Australians of African background, of uh, Latin American background and of Chinese background, mm-hmm. uh, they were very, very, you know, while they while it may have been great to have 
one of their brethren as the prime minister. They were very keen not to be owned by one particular side of politics. So, uh, you know, you can take the United States as a as as a lesson yeah. for dangers of too much political involvement by religious groups. Rabbi, I, I'm curious about your view about this because when it comes to uh, such incredibly important issues as discrimination, there is a need for a particular religious group to actually have a voice uh, to those leaders that can make some type of a an impact in that space or at least uh, speak to the fact that certain types of behaviours, certain types of symbols are not appropriate in a in a society such as ours. Do you uh, do you have a view about that relationship between religion and politics? So yeah, they're two separate things. I think one is sort of lived experience. So me being the grandson of a Holocaust survivor and under of you know my grandfather lost his sister, older sister, his younger brother, his parents, and extended family. Into the to the Nazis and to in in the concentration camps, um, and understanding the danger of hate symbols, uh, for example, the Nazi swastika in 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 this particular scenario, especially here mm-hmm. in Victoria, is now banned, and soon the Victorian government is going to ban um, the the Nazi salute. Is working on banning the Nazi salute, followed by I think it will come eventually other Nazi. Uh, and hate hate symbols, but there, but and that's important to speak to government because we know because from our lived experience seventy five years ago, and just to let you know to let our listeners know that the highest um, portion per capita of Holocaust survivors settled in Melbourne outside of Israel. Just understand wow. that that the majority of the Jewish community, a significant mm-hmm. percentage have grandparents, now even great-grandparents, that are living or have passed that were survivors of the Holocaust. So we understand what happens via these hate symbols and hate speech. You know, Hitler and the Nazi party, they rose to power. It wasn't overnight. It was via speech and symbols. And slowly we saw six million Jews, including one million children, as well as other members of minority communities being gassed and Mm -hmm. killed. So we, by our lived experience and understanding of what what happened to our families, we we, we come to government and we say, this is, you know, it's it's a slippery, slippery slope when people can freely get away with this type of discrimination and this hate rhetoric. But back to what we were just talking about earlier, I, I just want to say, as a rabbi, I try and keep it kosher. You know, I don't, from the pulpit especially, you know, try and be bipartisan. I love everybody. But at the same time, I don't feel Australians, and I can talk about my congregation, I don't think, and I know, they don't appreciate it. And I try not to and don't rarely talk politics from the pulpit. You are a rabbi, a rabbi is a teacher, you're a a religious leader, and so forth. What happens in, you know, the wider sort of society, especially within the political realm, you might have your own personal opinion, but that's not really supposed to be preached from the pulpit. And going back to what you were saying, Andrew, I feel that my American rabbinical colleagues (laughs) feel a lot more empowered to pick a 
political side. And you can see that from, you know, the East Coast, West Coast, and, you know, from some of their sermons on, over the high holidays there, there's a lot of political undertones over there. Whereas I think the Australian electorate, yes, there might be politicians that might worship have different a religion that they're very proud of and open about but once that starts informing their politics i think we see from the past um and you know even recent past elections the australian electorate doesn't really resonate with them and uh, and i see that also with uh, my community. Gabby, and Andrew, I'd like to move on to talk a little bit about social cohesion and, and the role that religion can play and has played around this sense of belonging. But um, so, um, Rabbi, I wonder if you might mention, because I, re- I was had the great opportunity to experience an event you held during Ramadan, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what was the driver for that particular, tell, tell people what that event was, but what the driver was and, and what the impact has been since then. It, we, we hosted at my synagogue and community centre, the Ark Centre, we hosted a, a iftar dinner in the middle of Ramadan. And from my, what I'm hearing from my colleagues now in Australia, this was in Australia first, that a synagogue on a Friday night, so we welcome the Sabbath and share the platform, the synagogue, with our Muslim brothers and sisters, welcome them into the synagogue and also let allow them to, um, to worship and have their call of prayer within the synagogue. But people forget that ultimately we, um, we, we worship <laughs> the Abrahamic God. So, it, you know, there's so many parallels. And that's really one of my motives around is that that's, that's one of my... Uh, a great um i think calls in a way here we ultimately we live in the lucky country we're we're so blessed and i just love sitting across the table from somebody from a different faith background a different religious background or secular background and learning from them and i i feel by doing by doing that we 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 just bring down so many barriers so many misunderstandings, misconceptions, and that in essence is going to assist and make what we're all looking to to, to get, that that bright light at the end of the tunnel, which is ultimately that social cohesion, more mm-hmm. tolerance, less anti-Semitism, less Islamophobia, less discrimination is by sitting across from each other and breaking bread. And if the more we can do that, well, the more we should. Absolutely. Andrew, you talked before about young people and their interest in religions. Um, I know when I was a long time ago, back in school, and we had the opportunity to learn about a whole variety of religions, that was far more attractive to me than going to church on a you know, Friday morning or whatever it might have been. So um, given that there's that degree of interest and knowledge and awareness mm-hmm. amongst young people that are moving away potentially from these more formal affiliations, how important are these type of cross-religion conversations when it comes to social cohesion, building that 
that sort of understanding across the population of how important that the diverse religions are in Australia? Uh, They're critical. And I have to say uh, what Rabbi Gabby is doing is clearly working because the data shows that um, we actually have a a great appreciation of the strength of religious diversity in this country. And it's, it's paradoxical, but younger people um, less willing to profess a religion but are but also much more tolerant and welcoming of other faiths I mean this is a remarkably I, I will not accept a, a tale of woe here because this is a remarkably successful country when it has come to interfaith relationships um it's a remarkably successful country when it comes to freedom of religion there's there's going to be continuing debate about the extent to which faith uh, communities have the right to uh, pass on the values of their particular texts and their traditions and faith and where they clash with other uh, uh, human rights. That's an ongoing debate. I accept that. But as a general rule, this is a remarkably uh, successful and cohesive uh, country when it comes to uh, religious um, uh, religious freedom and religious practice. And uh, I think the Pew Research in the United States also points this out. We have very, very, we have almost no religiously motivated violence in this country. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, 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 in fact, in fact, I mean, certainly 20 years ago, there was a paranoia after 9-11. It was understandable. But we have today no almost no religiously motivated violence in this country there are groups on the far right far right groups that are mobilized and inspired by um, a toxic online content that do pose a problem and the uh, intelligence agencies are very aware of this they publicized it but as a general rule this is a country with, you know, great religious comedy, and that is very, very important because um, as immigration grows, because this is one of the strengths of, of Australia, as immigration grows, so will our religious diversity. Um, Hinduism, Islam and Sikhism are the three fastest growing mm-hmm. religions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that's only going to continue, mm-hmm. uh, which makes it even more uh, important that people like Rabbi Gabby continue their interfaith outreach. Um, I just make this point too. Um, if we go back to the United States, because it's such a great laboratory of this, a lot of once quite conservative Christian groups have realised that their religious freedom is best guaranteed by extending the religious freedom to peoples of other faiths. So, for example, uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, um, they have been extremely active in promoting religious liberty for all Americans, no matter what their faith background, because they know in the end it guarantees their own religious liberty as well. Um, It's not just a statement of principle. It's a pragmatic position as well that I think... um, uh, uh, you know, uh, faith leaders in Australia recommend uh, recognise as well. 
Yes, absolutely. Um, you, you've talked to Andrew about the importance of sort of humanities and social sciences as being, right, yes. being yep. a really important component of people's education so that there's a greater acceptance of intellectual diversity as well as acceptance of, of diversity within particular uh, components of people's lives. Mm. D- did you want to comment at all about that importance of intellectual diversity as well as uh, it and its role in social cohesion, if you like? There are clearly... There are clearly outer boundaries uh, of comment and behaviour, and I would argue even certain forms of um, intellectual inquiry that we need to observe. Um, but I would, Jen, I mean, I mean that, you know, and and we're talking here, and this goes back to the point that uh, Rabbi Gabby was making, and you made earlier uh, about um, laws, you know, uh, affecting things like the display of the swastika. Um, you know, you can clearly see a very a uh, formidable case for those kind of boundaries. I think you were referring to a piece that I wrote a few, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, uh, about um, the previous government and its uh, decision to raise tertiary education fees disproportionately on people who studied things like history, political science, anthropology, um, religious studies. My point there was simply that um, these uh, subjects and disciplines that broaden our knowledge of the world, and even for practical purposes, why would you want a country that is less knowledgeable <laughs> about about these things? Why would you want? Why would you want an Australia that is ne- less knowledgeable about our closest neighbour, that is uh, Indonesia, the world's fastest growing Muslim country, a fascinating place? where Indonesians themselves are working out the tensions between orthodox and more liberal Islam and where do we find the balance. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Indonesia is a fascinating uh, country. Why would you want a country and a population that's educated less in those areas? That was just one example that I was that I was making. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah. Um, Rabbi, I'm, I'm curious too, because there is quite a bit of diversity within the Jewish faith. Um, and and I'm wondering whether or not that is something that is, how, how, how do we recognise the particular nuances of how people follow their religions, but also uh, understand how that contributes to social cohesion? There are different, um, um, there's different, uh, avenues of worship and faith within the Jewish religion, but um, there's the Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox, there's conservative, and there's reform. But throughout all those different sects or, or, or ways of, perhaps ways of worship, are really common denominators. And, and they are the Jewish life cycle events, the Jewish calendar, and and the prayers. Mm-hmm. So if so if you walk into my synagogue, for example, which is an Orthodox synagogue, and then to the Reform synagogue down the road, there will be a lot of commonalities between the way we worship. Um, a lot of it will be done in Hebrew, some in English, but there will just there will be a lot of parallels. It, it won't feel like you're walking into a different language or a different time or a different world, for ex- for example, and. So much so, a lot of the peak bodies in Victoria fall under the one umbrella of the JCCV, the Jewish Community Council of Victoria. So there is that element of harmony. There are also 
a lot of people, regardless of where they worship, they go to the same schools and so forth. So there is, in a way, a separation between the educational system and the synagogues, and there are those many crossovers and the like. Obviously, we could do more. It would be great to, you know, to to do a little bit of more outreach with sort of the reform and the conservative community, with the orthodox community. But all in all, everybody mainly <laughs> gets along and so forth. There might be some rabbinical bodies that are that are different, and it just depends on where you subscribe to. Whether you're looking for a um, an answer when it comes to Jewish law from the Orthodox rabbi or from conservative reform rabbi. That's really where the difference, the difference is. True. The, the, there is, um, so the Jewish religion really does inform, and I'm speaking from a very ignorant background, but mm-hmm. does inform virtually every aspect of your daily life or one's daily life if you're following that that particular religion. And I'm, I'm really curious about how coming to a, a relatively secular society like Australia, there are um, times when uh, taking on a religion or, or being a part of a religion has to adapt to certain other requirements that happen within this society. And and is that something that's been an easy pathway for um, Jewish people living here in Australia? Are they, have they found interesting ways to develop certain institutions that help? I know there's an ambulance service that has that abides by certain religious requirements. Are there are there things here that have made it difficult or easy for um, the Jewish community to adapt? I think when you have the the lucky country that we are, Australia, and that freedom of religion and that. Tolerance, and it hasn't always been, you know, this utopia of tolerance, which it is this bastion of, of sort of freedom to to worship as you please. There was, you know, there's times of, and has been times of great discrimination that the Jewish community has faced, especially when they first came and the first wave of immigration as they, um, you know, came with their Italian and Greek um, immigrant immigrant communities. There, there, there was huge in the 50s and 60s. But at the same time, they... It was sort of chin down and get the job done. And these people were Holocaust survivors. This was nothing <laughs> compared to where they were a decade before and and so forth. And because we've survived historically by carving out this enclave within society of community, of family, and the support institutions without it, uh, with, with excuse me, within it mm-hmm. to support the destitute, to support the poor, the widow, and the orphan, and those that are needy. So we've always had that element of sadaka or charity or loving kindness, in with which is um, glued to Judaism, um, the you know, to the Bible, and really has kept us um, together as 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 a religion, as and as a community. So we've always had that element there. So when people were downtrodden, weren't doing as well they could there was always that fallback which is the beauty of community and so forth which the jewish community has seen and then when we go out into the world as jews we make do whether we're um, actively you know with the kippah with the with the head covering and the sit sit like i do or we just there as jewish people and at times we need to talk about it and so forth and so forth but i'm seeing now it's a lot more common and people quite understand what it means when somebody keeps kosher and i think with the rise of vegetarianism veganism (laughs) and so forth it's just a lot more sort of 
understood, oh, you're kosher. And therefore, and I think that's the beauty of sort of how we've evolved as a society and as Australians and so forth. And yes, there is that 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 first responders um, ambulance system mm-hmm. within Jewish community, which it doesn't it doesn't just service Jews. Anybody can 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 get their number and, and call them if they have uh, if they have um, sadly a, a, a crisis and a medical episode that you can call the Hatzalah and they'll come to you. There's no obviously. God forbid, in discrimination, they're there within the local area. And that's just sort of the way the community mobilizes when mm-hmm. there's a need for something or when somebody needs assistance or something needs to get built or something they come needs together. to We come together. And historically, that's how we've always been. But and and solve problems. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, absolutely. And that's sometimes because we've been so under the pump and so just discriminated against and so forth. But what I'm seeing now and beautifully is that the families and the community that have the communities that have done this are now giving back to wider mm-hmm. Australian society, which is just amazing. Some of those Jewish foundations, uh, Jewish family foundations, and philanthropic. There, it's not just we're taking care of our own, yeah. and it's for a long time it hasn't been like that. It's like we are going to help the wider society, which is just special to watch. Yeah, thank you. Uh, um, yes, I'll just I'll just add one one, one interesting observation there too, um, in terms of the contribution to broader Australian life. One of the uh, the um, most uh, powerful statistics uh, recently was that after the bushfire appeals, uh, after the bushfires, some of the um, uh, most uh, some of the biggest donations running into the tens of thousands, but sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars actually came from mosques mm-hmm. um, uh, raised at Friday prayers. Yes. Uh, so, you know, it is another demonstration of of how faith communities um, are very eager to be part of the Australian story, not set themselves, not set themselves aside from it, but to be, deeply entrenched in the Australian story. Um, and, I mean, you uh, made an interesting comment there, Anthea, and it's a common observation. I differ slightly where you referred to Australia as a secular society. Australia is a country with secular governance, and that is how it should be. Our constitution guarantees that we have religiously neutral government, but I would argue that we are a pluralist society. Mm-hmm. We're a pluralist society, secular governments, uh, governance as it should be, but a pluralist society. It is very hard to welcome. If you if you believe in multiculturalism, you have to welcome religious freedom as part of that. It yes. doesn't work. A multicultural society cannot work unless it guarantees religious liberty. That, you can't have true. one without the other. Yes, no, my apologies because I didn't actually oh, no, mean it in that, in that no, way. No, no, don't don't <laughs> apologise. It's 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 a it's it is the dominant uh, uh, comment that's made, but it's just one that I slightly slightly differ with. No, I absolutely appreciate the clarification too, because I must admit I had I'd thought of it more as there is no dominant religion that we expect everybody to follow. But you're absolutely yeah. right. I should. Yeah. Um, that would be a better way of saying it. But I'm I'm sort of following on from from where the rabbi was was making these comments i wondered whether or not you might be able to talk whether about examples of other religions that are adapting to a more modern context that some of their their particular pathways are changing or their practices yeah anthea this is a very good question because it's a li- it's a really live debate within faith communities i can uh, i'd best speak about it for example among christians um 
there is an argument as to, you know, uh, we have to be more relevant, i.e. we have to be more in tune politically or socially, you know, with the times for us to grow. The problem is that doesn't always hold up to uh, to scrutiny. Uh, Rodney Stark, the uh, Canadian sociologist of religion, argued that it's religions that remained more orthodox that tended to survive, if not prosper, during tough times. And I'm afraid that, you know, if you look again at the United States, I had to keep going back there, but it is the great, it is the great religious laboratory. <laughs> um, liberal Protestantism in the United States is diminishing at a rapid rate. Um, you think of the Episcopal Church in the United States, which has been the Church of Presidents, um, of, of Supreme Court justices, the, the Church of the American aristocracy, and there is a certain American aristocracy. Um, there's, there's less in the United States, there's probably fewer than a million people attending Episcopal churches um, every Sunday now. And the Episcopal Church has been at the absolute vanguard of liberal change. It hasn't worked. It has not worked for them. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, um, African-American churches continue to prosper, um, partly because, you know, they are they are the basis of so much African-American community life and unity, but they're also seen to be, um, you know, pretty faithful to, to their doctrine, even when it might seem um, unpopular in certain parts of the United States. In Australia, the the most progressive Christian church, uh, the Uniting Church, um, saw one of the biggest drop-offs in attendance um, in the last uh, census. Uh, the Uniting Church congregations are very um, are old, um, as are most Anglican congregations as well. Where there is growth, for example, in the Uniting Church, it's coming in Pacific Islander and South Korean mm -hmm. and uh, Chinese congregations, and they tend to be more orthodox in their religious views. Mm -hmm. So, and the, you know, it's, it's an excellent question that you ask, but there's no simple answer to it, because while churches and, and, and other faith organisations look at new technologies to reach out to new believers, if they're seen to to drift in a spiritual or doctrinal sense, they don't necessarily bring in a whole lot of new believers. Yeah. There, there is, just as a final question, and uh, so I want to thank both of you for this very stimulating conversation. Um, there is a sense uh, in our data, certainly, that the sense of belonging is dropping off, uh, particularly in, in younger people, but that overall there is a, a reduction in people's sense of belonging. But it has been suggested to me that part of the reason for that is that the, um, the attraction of churches as the, or, or uh, religious institutions as places to go or to experience that sense of, of uh, belonging that both of you have actually talked to, that real sense of, of uh, rejuvenation that you are, you are uh, experience in those particular places, the, the fact that there isn't that much 
people gravitating there. And I know that there are certainly intergenerational issues where older folks really wish that their younger children or grandchildren were attending more of these uh, experiences to get that sense of what religion can bring and spirituality can bring to your life. Just as a final thought, what do you think are the the potential implications of where religion is at the present time in Australia? I think we're seeing people that are incredibly spiritual, but as we've been talking about, might not feel like going into a organised place of worship. Um, those those spiritual elements that they're finding, whether and and the care that they're giving themselves, whether it's self-care, whether it's meditation, whether it's prayer or, or going to group therapy sessions or finding that community online, I think it's cyclical and that's where it is now. But I think that in-person community and and coming to synagogue to gather together, don't write off um, <laughs> organized places of worship just yet and we saw how integral they were during mm-hmm. the pandemic and how they they mobilized the communities that might not have oh, and the, the congregants and members that might not have come there in an extended period of time in person but ultimately that was their source of connection of course we're seeing that rise in loneliness and we see that across the board from, from all the data so whilst they're getting the spiritual needs um, from wherever they may be. And and we're seeing also that online. It's not ultimately a substitute for um, congregational in-person worship. And I think there will be a a, a resurgence um, in it. I know within the Jewish faith, there will always be a necessity, a need for synagogues, for shuls, um, for in-person gatherings, you know, we're about to hit the the the, the grand final season, <laughs> the final season within Judaism with the upcoming high holidays, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, where you know you might, uh, I see a lot of people one time a year, you know, one or two times a year in a very short space within a week, you know, because they come Rosh Hashanah and they listen to the shofar, they listen to the ram song being blown, and then they they're out of there and then they come back. Ten days later for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, they shake my hand and, you know, how are you, Rabbi? And I get the, you know, the <laughs> shalom, it's nice to see you and I'll, I'll see you next year. So they're, they're finding it in different ways, but rabbis, synagogues, and again, across uh, places of worship, across the spectrum, I think we'll, we'll, we'll see a resurgence, even though at the moment there is a downward trend, but as people, as people don't get what they're really craving, which is yeah. in-person contact, community, camaraderie, in person, not just online, not over the phone, I think they'll start coming back. But that we will have to that we will have to adapt. Um, it won't be the same as it was a couple decades ago. And we will evolve obviously within the parameters of Jewish law and orthodoxy and so forth. But that's, you know, something that I grapple with. How will we when people start? Yeah. Well, I'd certainly encourage everybody to look up Pillars of Light and to consider attending that event because uh, that's very special. But, um, I, Andrew, I just wondered if you'd like to have the last word. Not something I usually get, um, <laughs> <laughs> either at home or at work. But, um, but uh, uh, look, I'm... I'm um, you know, I'm so glad that uh, Rabbi Gabby sort of made that reference, the grand final season in 
in Judaism. Uh, but it reminds me, for example, of what uh, the great American sociologist Robert Bella um, wrote in his book about the habits of the heart, but also the Australian sociologist John Carroll has also spoken about, and that is this idea of a civic religion. Um, you know, people do need and crave rituals, mm-hmm. and they'll they'll seek them out in particularly in this country in sporting events, we are, we are, um, you know, just in our DNA, social, social animals, social people. Um, You know, there's a saying in the Bantu, uh, among the Bantu uh, people of Africa, that people are people through other people. (laughs) Um, That is, that is how we realize our humanity. On the question of, of, of faiths, look, the thing, and this is going to be a generational problem, at least for the Christian churches, is the sex abuse crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be a, you know, I just throw it in at the end, not normally the place where we start these discussions, but it's a generational crisis, uh, a generational challenge. It won't be overcome for several decades. Um, but what, what, but it doesn't undermine that question that people have about metaphysical things about why as opposed to how mm-hmm. um you know it, it and and that question remains as does our hankering for human interaction um you know robert putnam wrote bowling alone 20 yes. uh, 21 years ago and uh, he pinged at the time television as the <laughs> as the thing that had undermined social and community life. I have to say, I think our online world has continued to undermine that a fair bit. Um, And I can only hope that rather than entrenching uh, our online habits, that COVID and our liberation from it, it's not over, but broadly speaking, our liberation from it uh, prompts a rediscovery of community life. And in that comes a rediscovery of faith life as well. Thank you very much, Andrew. That's a great place to finish. So I very much appreciate your uh, your joining me and Rabbi Gabby also. I appreciate the fact that both of you have participated in this very engaging and very interesting conversation. So thank you very, very much. Uh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you to Rabbi Gabby. Uh, thank you for the work that you're doing. And uh, thanks very much, Anthea, and to Faisal Farah as well, who helped set this up. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, it's a really worthwhile thing. And and and, and I really just pay tribute to the um, o- ongoing work of the Scanlon Foundation. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for tuning in to the Voices of Australia podcast, brought to you by the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. This podcast is produced by me, Faisal Farah, and with audio, visual, recording and editing by John Bigelow from Interactive Media Solutions. Research for each episode is provided by Agalos Makrijorjos and Matthew Skidmore. Original music is by Steve Klapsinos. Learn more about the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute and all its works by visiting the website www.scanlaninstitute.org.au.